Coming up today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, Education Minister Stephen Lecce and QP National President Mark Hancock with what's happening now in the QP Education Support Workers dispute. The days are ticking down to a strike deadline. Has the face of organized crime changed in Ontario over the last few years? We speak with Stephen Matelski, a former Halton police officer and author of the book Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Has Canada's relationship with China become even more tense after a certain exchange at the G20 summit? Benoit Hardy-Chantrin, an adjunct professor at Temple University, Japan, is joining us from Tokyo. I'm Shona Thompson, filling in on the Bill Kelly podcast, which starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Minister Lecce is able to join us now and he is on the line. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Thank you. you so, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Good to be here. And obviously, uh, you know, um, regretful update for the people of Ontario that the union has decided to strike. But um, I just want families to know that we're working around the clock to get a deal and staying at the table to provide some stability for children who have been through, frankly, a lot. Uh, they had strikes a few years ago by the teacher, the education unions, and then a global pandemic. And I just think if this is about the kids, then we're not going to walk out on them on Monday. Um, sir, there's, there is some time between now and the Monday deadline. I understand mediated talks are continuing. They are. Uh, we're going to continue negotiating uh, right up until the deadline. We've indicated to the media we're never going to walk away from the table or from our or from our kids because I think there's a recognition from the government that these kids have been through an extraordinary amount of difficulty. It's just not been easy, you know, and I, I think we need to humanize these stories. I, you know, spoke to some parents with kids with special education needs and to disrupt their patterns, it's it's tough. I uh, talked to a single mother who told me that she has no choice but to stay home affecting her income. Uh, I mean, these are real issues, and I don't think uh, the unions should be uh, ever so casual in invoking a strike notice every few weeks. You know, remember when we started? Two weeks ago, they decided to strike on the basis of demanding 11.7% increase in wages. That was on Sunday. We introduced legislation the next day. We then committed to have them remove the strike. We said, we'll take away Bill 28. We'll remove that. We'll rescind it in its entirety. And uh, we did that. Uh, And then two days after rescinding the bill, they decided to strike, which I think is very confusing for many because they thought this was behind us. They made that we made our commitment, we did it right away, and, and their mutual commitment was not to strike. And here they are, even after the government increased our wages, three hundred thirty-five million dollar improved offer over the next four years for QP alone. And they also said to us, "Look, I don't want to have a differentiated wage. You know, we were sort of offering two different wages for the lower income uh, got more, and the higher income got less. They said we want a flat rate." We disagreed, but we still brought forth a flat rate, which is what they asked. And they also said to us, we want to maintain and protect uh, the the benefits, the health benefits for themselves, their families, the pensions, and obviously the six days, which is about 131 in total. So we did. We literally did everything asked of the government. And I think most of us are trying to understand this moving yardstick uh, and goalpost of what, you know, what is preventing a deal today when our kids are... Uh, that, you know, uh, they, they need us to be the adults in the room. Sir? And we've stepped up in a big way, and I just hope the union will do their part as well and stay at the table and Sir? accept a good deal 
You, members. you sent out a series of tweets last evening trying to con- connect with parents and let them know what was going on. You covered things like the wage increases, which you've just talked about again, uh, benefits protection. But one of the things that I didn't see in your tweets was something that the union was talking about yesterday, and that's higher staffing levels for the workers like educational assistants and early childhood educators to have at least one of those in every kindergarten class. Where is the government well, stand on that issue? Yeah, well, so what I mentioned in the tweet was, uh, well, one of them at least, was the fact that the government has a commitment to hire 1,800 education workers every year over the course of the contract, the support for students fund, uh, another 800 to 1,000 educators, frontline teachers. They're going to be funded through our government's commitment to bring in more staff. We've hired under our government since 2018 under Premier Ford roughly 7,000 more education staff, which is a massive increase of staffing. I mean, we're talking about thousands of additional frontline uh, workers, custodians, EAs, ECs, etc., that are really important in our schools. So not only have we increased the staffing by 7,000, and we're going to hire several thousand more, we've increased the funding. I mean, this year we've added $650 million more to publicly funded schools compared to last year, $3 billion more than the former Liberals were spending at the peak of spending under former Premier Wynn. We have stepped up and invested heavily. We've hired more staff. And we've offered them a very solid deal, competitive package uh, of wages that are now much higher than they were even a week ago. And they still are proceeding with the strike. And I think many of us are asking fundamentally, what is this strike about? And it always was about salary. They said yesterday that what we've offered was entirely insufficient. Well, respectfully, we increased the offer and withdrew the bill we did what we said we were, we committed to doing to them and to the people of Ontario because we're just trying to, you know, get to a deal, trying to provide some certainty to families. What the union has done is, you know, we, we're able to uh, uh, announce a strike vote that has an impact on millions of children that will shutter so many of our schools. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that is about the kids when you're walking out of class and, and upending the lives of so many parents in the province. Uh, QP's uh, Laurel Walton was saying that the staffing request that they've made would probably cost about $100 million. Is there enough money um, in your budget to be able to to move on that? And do you agree with that costing? Well, what we've done is uh, the Support for Students Fund uh, allocated, I believe, in around $200 million in, in investments for staff across the board. We also this year have um, a COVID fund that's supporting over 5,000 additional education staff that's been added to the schools. So we have, we recognize the need for these workers, and it's why that we've been hiring so many of them over the past years. And it's a commitment, I think, to families that we're going to continue to hire, invest, and improve the services within our schools. I think what I what I know this discussion has been about because I've been on your show multiple times. Uh, it's this this debate has been about salary up until 36 hours ago. Like it literally has only been about salary. I've only been asked about salary. We've only been discussing these issues at the table. And the union two weeks ago when they went out, they said, "Look, we're we're striking because they're not respecting our workers when they thought it was reasonable to request a 33% increase in pay, 11.7% a year." That's what started the strike only, you know, 15-odd days ago. And here we are again, still fundamentally debating on salaries. They could throw in any other last-minute items and try to change the, the, the focus. But I think most reasonable people know that this issue was about salaries. So we stepped up the salaries. Then it became about a legislation, a responding to their strike. We, we introduced legislation. We withdrew the legislation. 
And so I just think we, we, but we all have to be reasonable here. And I think people are starting to recognize that the union is, you know, really moving the goalpost and they're really not focused on getting to a deal. And the greatest impediment to a deal right now seems to be QP themselves. So I hope they'll stay at the table and not walk away from children and really double down our efforts to get to a deal. Let's provide some stability for these kids. I mean, they've been through so much difficulty. And I really, honestly, I have a great deal of angst for them. Because I know a lot of the most vulnerable families in our communities, kids with special education needs and mental health needs, kids that rely on our schools for for safety, for, for nutrition and food programs, it's just unfair. And they shouldn't have to go through this every few weeks, ever so casually, another strike notice. And they shouldn't have to be dealing with strikes every few years in the province of Ontario, which is the reality under every premier of every party for the last 30 to 40 years. So it is frustrating, but I do believe we can still stay focused on getting a deal. And that's why we're going to stay working with the mediator every single day right to Sunday. Minister Lecce, we've actually kept you beyond the time that uh, we were supposed to, so I appreciate you taking the extra time. This is a very important issue, as you said, for uh, parents and for students. And uh, so uh, we hope to hear something positive sometime between now and Monday. Our guest, uh, Minister Stephen Lecce, the Education Minister for Ontario. Thank you for your time, sir. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For the other side of the story, we have Mark Hancock, QP's national president, on the line with us now. Thank you for joining us this morning, sir. For having me, Shona. How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay, but I, I guess I'm like a lot of people in Ontario. We're hearing two very different kinds of spin here uh, about what may or may not happen between now and Monday. Yeah, well, I can tell you from from our side, especially, we're hoping that uh, we'll get back to the table and, and we'll get a deal that works for for kids, for parents, and uh, for for my members, our the workers in the education system. So, what is QP going to do between now and Monday in order to avert a walkout? Is there any negotiating room on the issues that are still remaining? Well, there's, there's always room to negotiate. Absolutely, um, we, we our message to the government to the uh, school districts has been that. Uh, we're ready to, to meet and to continue bargaining where we left things off and to try and find a deal that works for the employer and works for our members. Um, as I mentioned, we uh, spoke with Minister Lecce in the last half hour of this show. And um, one of his answers right off the top really caught my ear because he almost made it sound like he thinks a strike Monday is a fait accompli. Let me play you that audio. Sure. You know, um, regretful update for the people of Ontario that the union has decided to strike, but um, I just want families to know that we're working around the clock to get a deal and staying at the table to provide some stability for children who have been through, frankly, a lot. Uh, they had strikes a few years ago by the teacher, the education unions, and then a global pandemic. And I just think if this is about the kids, then we're not going to walk out on them on Monday. Um, so it seems like both sides really don't want to have a strike, but it also kind of sounds like you want the other side to do the bending. Well, by bargaining, there's bending on both sides, and, and I'm not sure what the minister's talking about. Uh, you know, our, our, our committee is here uh, in Toronto. Uh, they haven't gone home to different parts of the province, uh, but we haven't heard from the government. Uh, but uh, we are ready to sit down and, and uh, use the mediator. He's, he's a very good mediator, one of the best in the province for sure. And we're happy to sit down and talk about the issues. There's really there's not a there's not a, a, a huge gap between us. Uh, I know that if we get to the table and if both sides are serious, and I know we'll be serious, 
uh, there's no reason that we can't hammer out an agreement that works for everybody. Well, one of the key points that Laura Walton was making yesterday was that uh, one of the things that they want to see is job security uh, for their members in case there have to be cutbacks at boards. But the other thing was to try to make sure that there is at least one early childhood educator in every kindergarten class. And she costed that out at about $100 million. That seems to be quite a bit of, of room. Yeah, and, and again, like, you know, we, we've seen this time and time again where uh, every, every just as the collective agreement is about to expire, we've seen massive layoffs in many school boards, not all school boards, because the, there's a letter of understanding that deals with job security, and that means less services for kids uh, across this province. And, you know, I, I, I do travel the country. I, I, I get involved in different uh, uh, sets of negotiations, uh and I, and I can tell you this, like, you know, QB members don't fly in from another planet to do their jobs and then fly off. Uh, we're the recipients of those same services. So whether it's the 55,000 education workers or the over 250,000 members we have in this province, we want a collective agreement that works for our members, of course, but also the one that works for the kids, because in many cases, those kids uh, belong to QP members. They're, they're, they're children of, of education workers or they're uh, municipal workers or university workers. So we want to see an education system that really does work. It's important to all of us. Uh, QP uh, put out a, a news release and a statement yesterday, um, and part of it said that QP and its 715,000 members nationwide, because of course it is a national union, uh, they mm-hmm. will continue to fight to ensure the 55,000 members in the education sector here in Ontario get a fair deal. What does that mean? Well, that means we have a lot of resources at stake uh, here, and we, you know, 715,000 members is, is we're the largest union, and I think we're the, the best union across this country. Uh, we have a strong uh, strike pay, but we also have great folks working with us, a staff that work for our union, whether it's uh, communications or legal or servicing or, or support staff. Uh, we're very lucky to have such great people working with us. So uh, whether it's, uh, you know, buying uh, airtime on uh, with media or doing whatever it takes, uh, that's really what it is. And we've got a few other locals in, this, in Ontario that are uh, close to going on strike as well. We have two in Quebec that are currently on strike right now. Uh, one's locked out, actually, and one's on strike. So, you know, we're, we're not we're, we're used to negotiating collective agreements. We have 4,000 collective agreements across this country that uh, QP members uh, have, uh, big, big and small. And, and this is definitely one of the big ones, and we're obviously paying a lot of attention because it matters uh, to all of our members, not just the education workers, but we're going to make sure that they have the support that they need. Well, you and National Secretary-Treasurer Candace Rennick, you're in Toronto to support the efforts to get a deal. What does that entail? That just means I'm here to support the bargaining committee. I caught the red eye from Vancouver on Saturday. I was here last week and the week before. Of course, when the government dropped that legislation with that uh, nuclear bomb, the notwithstanding clause, so I got very involved at that time talking to leaders from other QP locals as well as other union leaders uh, from, you know, whether it's the Teamsters or OPSU or whatever the case may be. So uh, that's kind of my role. I'm here to support the bargaining committee. I, I don't sit at the bargaining table, but if there's calls that are needed to happen to, to governments or, or to other unions for support. That's that's my role here. Well, sir, there was uh, uh, that news conference uh, that was called for a week ago Monday uh, before mm-hmm. the uh, the government blinked and they decided to withdraw the notwithstanding clause and uh, Bill 28. Um, but there were about well, almost a dozen union and union leaders on that dais. Um, and I'm wondering how close you were to calling a province-wide strike to shut that down. Well, actually, there was about 25 union leaders up on, on stage with me and uh, and other folks, Laura, of course. Um, and uh, we had a, we had an announcement coming, uh, and it was shutting down uh, 
this province uh, here on, on, I guess it was going to be this past Monday. That was our plan. Uh, we were going to have a, a big uh, rally at Queen's Park on this Saturday and shutting down the province. And that was going to be escalating. And uh, I know a lot of unions uh, were being very supportive about shutting down uh, things like auto plants, uh, bridges, uh, airports. Uh, it was it was really uh, an amazing uh, show of solidarity and support, not only for our union, but against what uh, what the premier and this government had done by using that notwithstanding club clause, not only attacking labor rights but human rights. Uh, you know, that was a direct charter attack on the charter of rights and freedoms, and uh, we don't want that notwithstanding clause being used uh, as, uh, as simply a, a tool. And I know the premier has referred to it, but it's using that notwithstanding clause is is a huge deal, not only to QP to members or union members, but for for all Canadians. Um, Minister Lecce sent out a series of tweets last evening uh, setting out what he says the government has offered, uh, wage increases, benefit protections, but it didn't address that key issue of early childhood educators and kindergartner job protections. How important do you think it is that he left that out? Well, I, you know, I, I saw a couple of the ministers. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Twitter. Uh, I, I use it once in a while when I need to. Uh, but I saw he had some pretty uh, pretty bizarre tweets. Uh, one had... Uh, going back to what I think 1989, how many days have been missed? Like I, I, that was that was really bizarre. Kind of a, I think he likes to make a big splash on Twitter and uh, uh, try and send these these nuclear messages to go with his nuclear legislation. But uh, you know, I, I, one of the things I've done the last little while is been listening to members. And we had about 20,000 members on calls yesterday, and and I've, I've been hearing from folks and. And Laura actually talked about this, I think, in yesterday's news conference uh, when we when we announced that uh, you know things we were invoking the the strike notice. Uh, I talked about a, a a parent that had to sit outside uh, the school of her daughter with special needs here in Toronto. I think it was Toronto Catholic, uh, where she was on standby basically if uh, the daughter needed to be fed or needed to use the washroom because there wasn't enough education assistance to uh, to support that uh, that child that student and. And those are the type of stories that I've been hearing uh, from members across this province, whether it's uh, a lack of EAs or whether it's a lack of custodians or, or tradespeople. I know there's one school district up north uh, where they, they can't find uh, tradespeople to do some of the important jobs around heating and ventilation because the pay is too low. So, you know, whether it's an education assistant or, or a tradesperson or a secretary or a custodian, uh, this this government and these employers have, have to step up to the table to make our schools safe and to make uh, our kids journey through the education system an enjoyable one and one that works for them and the parents as well. Well, hopefully for everyone's sake, there will be a negotiated settlement uh, sometime before Monday. Mark Hancock, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Mark Hancock is QP's national president, joining us to talk about, well, the, on, the, the fact that the clock is now ticking towards a strike, but hopefully a negotiated settlement can be reached. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. When you think about organized crime in Ontario, what comes to mind? For many, particularly in Hamilton and London, the first thought would be the mafia. But is that still the case? There has been a bit of a power struggle after the murders of the Musitano brothers, and uh, that has opened the doors. Stephen Matelski is a former Halton police officer. He's also a professor of criminal psychology at Mohawk College and the author of Undercover Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Good morning, Stephen. Thank you for your time. Oh, thanks for having me back, Shauna. The last time we talked, it was about the Hells Angels gathering uh, in and around Toronto last summer. And it seemed a a very, you know, uh, polite affair. 
But uh, things uh, have been quiet, at least as far as the mob is concerned, um, at least for major murders anyway. But that doesn't mean that there's nothing going on. Absolutely. There is this sort of misnomer, um, you know, out there in the public domain that if things are quiet, it means, you know, organized crime is gone. It couldn't be further from the truth. You know, aside from, you know, if anybody's familiar with, you know, John Gotti, the infamous mafia boss of the Gambino crime family in New York, he wanted media attention. He went against the grain in the mafia. He was on the front of Time magazine, the New York Post. He welcomed that attention, which actually translated to the slow decline and downfall of the mob. Organized crime doesn't want to be on the front page of the news. They don't want to be, you know, out there, especially, you know, the different facets of organized crime. And and the one thing that's really fascinating to me, I was just instructing about this with uh, in some criminology classes, is the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada. They did a public report release in 2020, and they estimate that currently we have more than 2,000 organized crime groups believed to be operating in Canada. And that's the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada coming up with the report. So it's, you know, is, is organized crime alive and well? Yeah, it is. We just... We don't see the the underbelly of what's going on. Well, I don't think we have time to list all 2,000. Um, <laughs> but can you give me an idea of who the major players are, at least in southern Ontario right now? Yeah, in southern Ontario, it always has been traditional organized crime. And that is the Italian mafia. The, the Calabrian faction, they refer to as the Andragata, are, you know, the, the sort of the primary power groups in the traditional organized crime sense. And I actually don't like referring it to organized crime. I actually refer to it as transnational organized crime because long gone are the days where these organized criminal groups didn't work together. They used to be segregated and and worked on their own. When they realized they could morph their power bases, you know, one group might have, uh, you know, a corrupted area in this area. They might own part of the waterfront. Um, So the top two, in my opinion, professionally, is traditional organized crime. And then you have the outlaw motorcycle world, the Hells Angels. They are probably the most uh, powerful, organized, worldwide, international, organized criminal group. Wasn't there a period of time when the Mafia was using the Hells Angels and other uh, motorcycle gangs as kind of their muscles? But, you know, they don't play well with each other. They do and they don't. Uh, there was a big fallout, you know, the the infamous California sandwiches shooting where an innocent bystander was paralyzed. Uh, you know, there was a member of the mafia in lining up uh, to get lunch and a van pulled up with, you know, members of uh, the Hells Angels and organized criminal groups. It's more about disorganized crime lately that has created some inner turmoil between these groups. Let's face it, this is the illegitimate criminal world. And if you look back to one of the most powerful Canadian-based mafia families, it was the Rizzuto crime family in Montreal. And anyone I've interviewed, even on the police side, who has dealt with Vito Rizzuto in the past in person, everybody says he is the most charismatic, likable person. But you know, had he had just translated his business-like skills to the legitimate world, there's no doubt in my mind, he would have been highly successful. But he had a vision back in the 90s, and it was about bringing in the Irish Mafia, bringing in the Haitian gangs, bringing in the Hells Angels, and, you know, dividing the criminal fruits up equally. 
And because they all have one thing in common, a couple things, actually, it's number one, money. And number two, they don't want the heat. They don't want law enforcement, uh, you know, on their backs. So we have seen this, you know, in, in Hamilton and Southern Ontario over the years. There's no coincidence. There are Hells Angels chapters in close proximity where there are cells of traditional organized crime. Uh, it, it's like bread and butter with those two groups. Well, and on the topic of wanting to stay off the police radar, uh, we have not seen that sort of thing in, um, in certainly in the Hamilton area and extending over to London a little bit as well, because there has been that infighting, the murders of the Musitano brothers. And, you know, the mob really does love their symbolism because that was, what, almost 25 years uh, to the day uh, that uh, the uh, Musitanos had organized the murder of Johnny Papalia. Um, uh, but, you know, and then there's the, the backfighting and, and, I mean, home invasion murders involving members of the Lupino family here. That's not staying off the police radar. No, it's not staying off the police radar, and it's not staying off the mafia's radar. Radar. If you look at uh, Project Tremens, it was an RCMP-based project that involved a police agent, and a police agent is an elevated form of a confidential informant. And that police agent was a member of the mob and wore a hidden wire for four years. And that wire, the 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 sort of follow-up uh, in a criminal sense, led to the arrest and incarceration of the Violi brothers, Dom and Joey. And Dom is already out uh, in a halfway house, you know, after spending four years in jail. And a month after he was sentenced and went to jail, you know, his cousin, Che Che Lupino, was gunned down in his garage in Hamilton uh, three years ago this January. And, you know, he was related to members of the mafia, but he wasn't in the mafia. So, you know, all these, it, it has been quiet, but I always say it's always the calm before the storm. That's when all the scheming, the planning, the mafia revenge is best served on a cold plate. And when you mentioned symbolism, Sean, it, it couldn't be more relevant in the mafia. They exude patience. When you look at Musitano, when he was gunned down in Burlington uh, two years ago this past summer, uh, very eerily similar to the way they took out Johnny Papilia. It was a sunny day, public area. He was dead, laying on the cement, uh, shot in the head. You know, Pat went out the same way. And I don't think that's coincidence. That's that's a message from the underworld and what the Musitanos did to shake that up back in 97. Well, yeah. And I mean, taking murders to the doorstep. I mean, that that used to be like your family home. That used to be sacrosanct. We don't do our business there. That's changed. And it was uh, the murders of Johnny Papelia and his right-hand man in Niagara Falls that really, I think, kind of changed that because that secondary murder was done in his doorway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when Carmen Barilero, Ken Murdoch, knocked on his door and it, say what you will, you know, there's these are still human lives. You don't want to see anybody get murdered. But when you're in the mafia, in the underworld, there is this in by the gun, out by the gun mentality. But when it crosses that fringe of, you know, innocent family members, when I refer to it as disorganized crime, we've seen, you know, the the crew of three guys, two who uh, fled to Mexico, one was found dead, one is still reportedly allegedly missing. Uh, the other one was uh, faced a trial here in Hamilton last year. Uh, they were also responsible for the botched hit that took Mila Barberi's life, an innocent young woman who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, tragically. So, you know, we're seeing this 
lack of disrespect now with members. The public doesn't really, you know, give a lot of attention if they are just attacking and, you know, targeting each other for death. But when it starts infringing in on public safety, specifically the innocent loss of lives, and we see the proximity, some of these members of organized crime are being gunned down mere steps away from where their family and young children are. Well, and that's one of the things that I wanted to get into because, you know, it seems like everybody has their their mob story if you live in Hamilton and <laughs> London. You know, everybody's yeah. met somebody or knows somebody who is a part of that sort of thing. But um, how do you stay away from all of this? Because, you know, you pointed out that Mila Barbieri, innocent bystander, and she's dead. Yeah, you know, the the context of, of that was her boyfriend uh, was allegedly a member of organized crime. His father uh, was an embedded finger, uh, figure, sorry. Um, and, and that just happened to be, um, you know, that's the problem. You know, these, these street level contract murders, they're being contracted out to either amateurs, uh, inexperienced criminals, um, different factions of organized crime. So, you know, we're seeing this this sort of trend, uh, a not, not a good trend, towards, you know, a disorganized aspect when when they're sort of farming out, for lack of better words, you know, these contracts to be, to be committed uh, and perpetrated on the streets. Um, you know, the number two, top two rackets of organized crime are, you know, and have been for years, is drugs, importation of drugs, trafficking, and gambling and a lot of innocent people you know we have legitimate government-run casinos but uh, we saw this over covid where the casinos were closed and you know people lost their lives people lost their jobs everybody was locked down the one thing that really thrived was organized crime they take you know a negative world life experience and they expose that for their own monetary gain so you know with the influx of technology we're seeing more and more illegal online uh, betting platforms and innocent people you know if you win legitimately you will be paid but if you lose you now owe money to these factions of organized crime we've seen uh the italian mafia working with the hell's angels in various online rackets over the years pertaining to gambling so a lot of times it's educational awareness um you know gambling is on the fringe of being recognized as an addiction and it's just being very cognitive about where you gamble, you know, keep it on the legitimate side of the equation. Yeah, it, it's going back to the old playbook. I mean, prohibition was a boom time for the mob. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's the thing when when it's almost like an economic, it's like the supply and demand. When the supply is no longer there, that is when organized crime steps up to plate and says, oh, yeah, well, we can supply that. You know, tragic things in our society today, some of the major crises is opioid crisis, the human trafficking. These are all things that uh, when you look at the underbelly of it, it is all organized criminal activity behind these, you know, these horrendous things that are exploiting human lives. And the tragedy to all this is they put human life second to putting money in their pockets. And, you know, the one thing that we're seeing is, you know, a lot of people don't realize like the Mexican cartels are so saturated in Canadian society. The bulk 
of the drugs coming into Canada are coming from the cartels. If you look even out in British Columbia, you know, a lot of the shootings and murders out there that we've seen in the mafia in Southern Ontario is eerily reminiscent, but it, it, that is the gateway to where a lot of the, the Mexican cartels and narcotics are coming up. And that's really the root causality of these thousands of innocent deaths, accidental deaths that we're seeing with the opioid crisis. We're speaking with Stephen Matelski, who is a former Halton police officer. He's also a professor of criminology at Mohawk College and the author of Undercover Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. We've been talking about organized crime in Ontario. And and Stephen, one of the things that I've noticed as a reporter, because these stories will cross your desk and you start to see linkages or you start to have questions about some things that seem pretty similar or suspicious. And one is a lot of street crime. Maybe this goes back to your point about uh, the Mexican cartels, but uh, particularly vicious beatings of individuals for things like laptops, running shoes, cell phones. Uh, That may be lower order stuff, but it's still a form of organized crime because it's a bunch of guys who are doing it. Yeah, for sure. You know, the the root definition of organized crime uh, doesn't necessarily always translate to mafia or bikers. It's, you know, if you look at the legislation, the criminal organization definition is three or more people working together in tandem uh, to commit not uh, more than one offense with the sole material benefit of that group. And that could be cell phones, shoes. It could be armored trucks. Um, you know, it's it's three or more people getting together to create uh, and, and wreak havoc on the streets. And another thing, Shona, is the you know awful trend of carjackings. And, you know, we, we've seen that spike in the winter um, and especially now. And the one thing is I've always sort of put that out there is give your car up. A lot of these individuals are armed. They will use deadly force if you resist. I totally understand and appreciate people's connection with their personal property. But I always say property can be replaced. Human life cannot. These individuals are violent. They're trigger happy. They will uh, inflict deadly force on people if they resist or fight. It's property. Give the property up. Don't resist because that property can be replaced. It is a fascinating topic, and uh, you can read more about it in Undercover, Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Stephen, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Shona, for having me back. Stephen Matelski is a former Halton police officer. He's also a professor of criminology at Mohawk College. And again, he's the author of Undercover Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, we heard from Dr. Lori Turnbull of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. One of the topics we discussed was the maneuvering that goes on on the sidelines of the G20 summit with leaders trying to get some face time with other leaders, and that sort of determines a pecking order. As it turned out, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Chinese leader Xi Jinping met twice And the second meeting did not go well because the prime minister had released information about the first meeting. Xi kind of took the PM to the diplomatic woodshed and the exchange was caught on pool cameras. Everything we discuss is then leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. 
And that's not how the way the conversation was conducted. If there is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and this what we will continue to have, we will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on, and you will have to be Let's create the conditions first. For diplomacy, that got pretty testy. And then Xi walked away. They did shake hands, but it was still pretty frosty. Uh, And uh, so we decided to get in touch with somebody who would know a lot more about these inner workings and the subtlety that's involved here. And that's Benoit Hardy-Chartron. He's an adjunct professor of political science at Temple University in Japan, and he's joining us from Tokyo. I I guess it's good evening in your time zone. Yes, absolutely. Almost 1 a.m. here, but it's a pleasure to be on the show. I appreciate you staying up so late to, uh, to help us understand what's going on here. What was your take on that exchange between Trudeau and Xi? Well, it was obviously an interesting exchange, but it's not particularly unusual to have these kinds of exchanges um, in meetings such as the G20. Now, of course, when it comes to the Chinese leaders, uh, the Chinese leader, usually their appearances, uh, usually the way they interact with foreign leaders is very scripted. So this kind of uh, annoyance that was displayed by uh, President Xi is quite unusual to say. So I would say that this is a surprising part. But other than that, when you go to meetings, especially G20 meetings, when you have leaders from uh, 20 of the top economies in the world, it's really not unusual for uh, leaders to, you know, to to stand aside for a couple minutes and discuss whatever issue there was. Um, and in the case of Canada and China, because there was no uh, true bilateral official meeting that was scheduled. There was first a meeting uh, on Tuesday, and then there was the exchange that we all saw uh, on Wednesday. And um, I mean, relations between Canada and China have been very frosty, to say the least, for many years now. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Canadian uh, Canadian Canadian relations, pardon me, with China were actually relatively on a positive track until around 2018. If we recall about five years ago, in fact, Canada was uh, ready to embark on negotiations uh, for a free trade agreement with China. And the Canadian government had actually already started uh, public consultations with Canadians from various fields uh, about the potential free trade agreement. Now, obviously, this all changed in 2000, at the end of 2018, when the two Michaels, uh, Michael Kovarig and Michael Spaver were detained by the Chinese government, ostensibly in retaliation for the detention in Canada of the Huawei executive uh, Meng Wanzhou. So since then, relations have declined significantly. Uh, There's no more talks, obviously, of an FTA, of a free trade agreement. Uh, If you look at uh, Canadian public opinion in China, it's it's more unfavorable to China than it's ever been. And it's not only in the Canadian public. In my conversations with Canadian officials, um, whether from Global Affairs Canada or other other, um, departments of the the government, the tide has also changed. Uh, China is no longer seen as this... Um, if I can say this kind of land of opportunity, but rather a partner that we need to deal with, but uh, that is obviously poses many challenges to Canada. So there's been a real 
reversal of how the country uh, sees uh, this, uh, sees China, really. Well, I mean, certainly with the invasion of Ukraine, Russia's stock has fallen on the international scene. And it seems like that's an opportunity for China. Is this now um, a country that we have to find some way to deal with, even though there are things we're not happy about? Well, obviously, China is not a country that you can ignore. It's the second largest economy in the world. It is predicted that within roughly 10 years, maybe before the end of the decade, decade it's going to surpass China and uh, sorry, the United States and become the largest economy in the world. Uh, it's a huge market. It's one of the top trading partners for Canada. In fact, it is the most important uh, trading partner for in Asia for Canada. Uh, number two would be Japan. Um, so it is simply not a partner that that can be ignored. And even if you put aside the trading aspect of Canada's relationship with China, um, China is just too important a partner, a partner on too many um, global issues of importance, whether, whether it is uh, global climate change, global warming, um, things like, um, I mean, the war, in, the war in Ukraine is one issue, of course, but Canada and China don't see eye to eye on this. Things like non-proliferation. There's many issues on which uh, China is an indispensable partner internationally. So no, to answer your question, it's not a country that can be ignored. So that's what's going to be challenging for Canada is to strike a balance between kind of like Prime Minister Trudeau said, but working with China on issues that are important to Canada, but also challenging uh, the country on on other issues. So how do we um, make relations less frosty? Well, that's not an easy thing to do, because I think the detention of the two Michaels that I mentioned earlier really... Um, make it very difficult even though the two michaels obviously were released last year uh the real change in the outlook of the canadian government uh since that time um makes it really difficult to uh, go back to square one or rather make it difficult to resettle reset the relationship rather i would put it that way um how do we make it less frosty while you, we would have thought that a meeting between Xi Jinping and Trudeau would have uh, helped to defrost a little bit the relationship. But obviously, what they did in Bali did not really uh, go very far in that direction. Um, I think there needs to be greater uh, engagement at the top level. There needs to be um, more uh, talks as well at the highest level between, for example, the Canadian foreign minister and the Chinese foreign minister. Um, this is not going to change uh, in any time soon but there certainly needs to um, have dialogue at the highest level to kind of uh, push further changes uh, down the line. Well, thank you so much for your insights and for staying up so late to talk to us. I really appreciate that. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Benoit Hardy-Chartrand is an adjunct professor of political science at Temple University, Japan, joining us from Tokyo. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.